you'll have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 3. I'm glad you guys are here. My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. I want to invite you um, to Mighty Men on Wednesday. It's something we do every four or six weeks. It's not just for guys. The name comes from a passage in 2 Samuel talking about these guys, these warriors who were with David who did some, the Bible says, mighty exploits. And so we've kind of taken that and we know there are people who are actively engaging in ministry. You might not feel like what you're doing is mighty, but it is to the Lord. And so created a spot for people who are actively engaging. We call that your deal, actively engaging in your calling to come and to share and to be encouraged and to receive prayer. And so that's what Mighty Men is. It's that simple. We'll eat together, connect a little bit around the tables, and then we'll have an opportunity for those three things, to share and pray and to receive encouragement. So I'd invite you to come if that's you, if you're, again, actively engaging, whatever ministry looks like for you, if you're actively engaging in that, we would love for you to come. And for some of you, uh, you really enjoy praying for people. That's an area where you're, it's kind of your wheelhouse. Uh, We would love for you to come as well, and there'll be an opportunity for you to encourage uh, some other folks. All right, so John, first two-thirds of John chapter 3, Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee, and he's trying to get Nicodemus to see the importance of spiritual, of a spiritual conversion. And Nicodemus is an understanding, and there's some key verses. Jesus says early on in the chapter, uh, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, anyone who wants to enter the kingdom of heaven has to be born again. And for Nicodemus, this is kind of mind-blowing. He's a Jew, and so he would think, well, my natural birth is what got me into the kingdom of heaven. I was born a Jew. I was born into the chosen people. I'm, I'm, I'm part of God's family because I am Jewish. And you're telling me that's not enough. And he doesn't understand. And Jesus uses multiple images to try to help Nicodemus. And it doesn't seem to be working. So last week we saw Jesus change directions. And he says, all right, let's try this instead. And he pulls on a story from Numbers, which Nicodemus probably has memorized. Uh, it's part of the first five books of the Bible, and a good Pharisee would most likely have all of those stories internalized. And he talks about a story where the Israelites are in the desert, and they begin to grumble and complain against God, and God sends snakes, venomous snakes, into the camp as judgment. And these snakes are biting people, and they're dying. And the people cry out to Moses and say, help us. And Moses cries out to God and says, what do you want me to do? And God says, make a copy of a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And anybody who looks at that snake will be healed. Weird story, but it's true. Anyone who looks at that snake will be healed. And Jesus then makes a parallel for Nicodemus, thinking he's drawing on this story, this tradition that Nicodemus would know as a Pharisee. Hey, just like that happened back thousands of years ago with our ancestors, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. When Jesus talks about himself as the Messiah, he calls himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man will be lifted up. He's talking about his death, crucified on a pole. And anyone who puts their faith in him will inherit eternal life. Anyone who believes in him will live forever. And then in that most famous of verses, Jesus is trying to unpack this picture for Nicodemus. And he says what becomes John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in that son will not die but will live forever. And then the verse following that for God didn't send the Son to the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through the Son. And we said, you get a lot. You don't get everything you need to know about God in those two verses, but you get a lot. You get God's basic orientation towards the world, which is love. If you ever wonder how God feels about you, or how God feels about your neighbor, or how God feels about your enemy, He loves them. He loves everyone that He's created. It says, God so loved 
the world. No exceptions. If you ever wonder what God is doing, what's he up to? I don't see evidence of his activity in my day to day life. God desires to save the world and that's the work that he's doing. God so loved the world. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. So you see God's basic orientation or posture towards everyone who created his love. And you see God's desire for everyone is their salvation. He desires to be reconciled with everyone. Now, we know everyone won't be saved, but that's not because God doesn't desire them to be saved. It's because they reject his invitation. They reject this son who he has given to them. And we'll see that a little bit Today, So today what we're going to look at, we're going to close chapter 3. We said that the point of John's gospel, he says, I'm writing all of this down so that you'll believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you'll have life in his name. So that's what John's trying to do. Everything he's writing, he's writing with the end in mind, I want people to believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, so that they'll live. And so Jesus has just made these um, very strong statements about salvation, about being born again, about eternal life. They're revolutionary at the time. And John steps back and says, here's why you can believe him. He's just, he's just said some things that are really profound and really important. And I want you to be able to trust what he's saying. And so John gathers two witnesses, himself being one, to say, here's why you can believe Jesus. Here's why you can trust what he says. And the first witness is John the Baptist. We've seen him before. We've actually looked at this passage before, but in a different Light. So starting in verse 22, after this, that conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and he baptized. And John was also baptizing at Anon near Selim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. And there was this was before John was put in prison. So an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Two key phrases for us. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. And my joy is now complete or my joy is full. We'll come back to those. So the setup, John and Jesus are both baptizing near the Jordan River. They're near each other. And Jesus' crowd is getting bigger and John's crowd is getting smaller. And a Jewish man comes up to John's disciples and he kind of picks a fight with him. He has an issue with what John's disciples are doing. And we don't know exactly what... The issue is, it says ceremonial washing. It could be the fact that John was baptizing Jews and Jews were not baptized. That was a sign of conversion and Jews didn't need to be converted. They were already part of God's chosen people. That's Nicodemus' issue. Why do I have to be born again? And maybe this guy was upset because John was baptizing Jews and just te- instead of just telling them to, to take these ceremonial baths to be clean. Or it could be. John was an ascetic. He was very strict in his lifestyle. And it could have been that when people were coming to him, he was kind of laying down the law and saying it. But before you can come to me, you've got to purify yourself. Could be. We don't know. But for whatever reason, these guys have an issue with John the Baptist and what he's doing. And they come to his disciples and complain. And then the disciples come to John the Baptist. And I think they're frustrated. And I think they're upset. And I think this controversy is kind of what pushes them 
over the edge. I think they've seen their friends leave John the Baptist and go to Jesus, and they've seen Jesus' crowd swell and their crowds shrink, and this guy's coming to them and complaining to them about what they're doing, and Jesus is doing things that are very similar, and nobody's giving him a hard time. And they come to John, they say, well, what are you going to do about this? We're losing ground here. What are you going to do? It's a big deal for somebody to be your rabbi. Not everybody had one. When someone, when you say, I want to be your follower, I want you to be my rabbi, you're basically saying, you're my hero. I want to live life the way you live life, the way you understand God, the way you understand the Bible, the way you understand life. I want to pattern my life after you. I want to literally follow in your footsteps. It's a huge commitment. There's a lot involved in becoming a disciple of a particular person. And these guys are seeing this guy, John the Baptist, who... They have followed who they've yoked their life to for however many months or years he's been doing what he's doing. I would say maybe it's been a year. They've lived their life got under his leadership and they're seeing he's, his ministry is, is winding down is the best way of saying it. And so they go to him and again, and I think their hearts are in, in this and they're going, we've, we've yoked our lives to you and a bunch of guys are going to him and what are you going to do about it? You've got to make some changes here. And John's response is, I'm not going to do anything. It's as it should be. A man or a person can only receive what's given them from heaven. That's a general statement. A person can only give what's, can only uh, receive what's given them from heaven. And then he unpacks that. You know, I, I told y'all from, for a while I've been saying, I'm not the Messiah. My job is to prepare the way. That's what's been given me from heaven. Him, Jesus, he is the Messiah. That's what's been given to him. We've been given two different tasks. We've been given two different roles. And we're each playing them. And, and, and mine is, is ending. It's like at a wedding. You've been to a wedding. He's talking to them. Y'all get this, right? That the, the best man is not the star of the show. It's the groom. He's the main character. He's the one the spotlight should be on. The, the job of the best man is just to support the groom, and, and that's me. I'm just the best man. Jesus is the center of attention here. And his ministry needs to continue to grow and expand, and mine needs to continue to, con, needs to, continue to shrink and to, to go away and to decrease. Why? Because mine is a ministry of preparation, and there's no need for preparation anymore because the Messiah is here. The Messiah is here, and so I, I, of course my ministry is decreasing, and that is as... It should be, and I actually take a lot of joy in that. My joy is complete, or my joy is full. And we'll come back to that statement. So what John the Baptist would say is the reason you should believe Jesus is because he's the Messiah. He didn't come right out and say it. He says it in this roundabout way through this story and this exchange he has with his disciples. But what he would say to us is, if Jesus is talking about being born again, if he's talking about salvation, if he's talking about eternal things, you should listen to him. Because he's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one sent by God. He's the Messiah, and you should listen to what he's got to say. Now, John the writer, this is confusing. It's not John the Baptist, the guy who wrote this book. He puts his two cents in. Now, this is written 50, 60 years after Jesus' life and death and resurrection, after his ascension into heaven. And he's writing this to people he knows. And you can kind of see in him, he's, he wants them to get it. This is big. John chapter 3 has got a lot of good stuff in it. This this interaction with Nicodemus is really important. And John, the writer, you can see him, he's kind of butting in on the story and saying, I need y'all to get this. It's this, it's this editorial comment. 
I want you all to understand you can believe what Jesus just said. It's really important that you grab onto it. And I'm going to tell you why you can believe that from someone who's been following him now for five plus decades. From someone who saw with his own eyes, saw this resurrected Jesus, saw him ascend into heaven. From that perspective, not in the moment of John chapter 3, but from the perspective of one sitting back, 50, 55, 60 years later, saying this, this is why you can believe him. Starting in verse 31, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who's from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testified to what he's seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Here's another way. This may help you a little bit, all those pronouns. I'm in blue there. The one who comes from above is above all. So that's Jesus. The one who's from the earth belongs to the earth. That's John the Baptist. John the Baptist speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Again, that's Jesus. Jesus testifies to what he has seen and heard in Heaven, that's where he's from, but no one accepts his testimony. So that's an exaggeration. It's not true because the next sentence says whoever has accepted his testimony. So people have whoever has accepted his testimony about what he has seen and heard in heaven has certified that God is truthful for the one whom God has sent. That's Jesus speaks the word of God, the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit to Jesus. The Father loves the Son, that's Jesus, has placed everything in his hands. And whoever believes in the Son, that's Jesus, has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So what John is saying is, we can only be a witness to what we've personally either seen or heard. Jesus is talking about these heavenly spiritual realities. He's actually been in heaven. He's been there, it's where he's from. And so when he talks about being born again, when he talks about salvation, when he talks about eternal life, he knows what he's talking about. I've seen him. Again, think about this 50, 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. He goes, I saw him go to heaven. I, that's where he went. That's where he came from. When he's talking, his words have authority. He's an eyewitness to these realities, and you can, you can believe him. Now, not everyone believes him. He says no one believes him. He exaggerates sometimes. Not everyone believes him. But the people who do believe his testimony, they're actually affirming God. The words of Jesus are the words of God. You can't separate the two. You can't say, I'm good with God and I'm not good with Jesus. It doesn't work that way. I'm good with the Father, but not with the Son. It doesn't work that way. To affirm Jesus is to affirm God. To reject Jesus is to reject God. Why? Because the words Jesus are using are the words of God. Well, how do you know that? Because God gave the Spirit to Jesus without limit. That's different from all of our other heroes. Everybody we look to in the Old Testament as a hero of the faith, all of them received the Holy Spirit for a particular amount of time and for a particular task. It was limited, this gift of the Spirit to them. Not so with Jesus. The Holy Spirit never withdrew from Jesus. In fact, in John chapter 1, John the Baptist, he said, I don't know who the Messiah is. I don't know. God didn't tell me a name. What God told me was a sign. He said, when this sign is fulfilled, then you'll know. The person on whom the Holy Spirit descends and remains. He is the person who is the Messiah. 
And John said it was Jesus. When he was being baptized, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove and remained on him. The Holy Spirit was given to him without limit. That's way different than everybody else. That's how you can believe that the words he's spoken are the words of God. And this Jesus, he's not just the Messiah. He hasn't just been given a job to do. He's not just a guy with a task. He's actually the son of the Father. He's the son of God. God loves him. God just hasn't just tasked him with a responsibility. God loves him. He's actually given all authority into his hands. He's, he's, he's given him everything. And so by believing in him, you can experience life. If you reject him, then God's wrath, his righteous anger towards sin will remain on you. You'll remain under the wrath of God, which is a terrible place to be. You'll remain under the, God's righteous anger for sin. The third week in a row, we've seen the importance and the necessity of a spiritual conversion. The importance or the necessity of being born again, of placing our faith and our trust in Jesus, of acknowledging that we've been separated from God because of our own sin. And we can't outgood that sin to be made right with God. Nicodemus, Jesus says, you've got to be born again. You've got to look at the, believe in the sun, look at the snake, like we talked about last week. Your Jewishness is not enough. The fact that you're a Pharisee and you're probably one of the best on the planet at keeping the law. That's not good enough. Those things don't reconcile you to God. You can't, you can't behave your way into a right relationship with God. And, and, and your pedigree, your heritage, your history, none of that matters. Paul talks about this in Philippians 3. He's writing to a Gentile audience, which is probably like us, mostly a group of Gentiles. And what Paul is saying is don't be tricked. Don't be fooled into thinking that you can work your way into God's good graces. Don't believe into thinking you could behave your way into a right relationship with God. If anybody could do that, it was me, Paul says. I checked all the boxes. I came from the right family. I, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was from the tribe of Benjamin. I was born into the family of God as a Jew. Most of you weren't, he would say to the Philippians. Y'all are Gentiles. I have that on, on you. I, I was faultless in keeping the law. I was a Pharisee. We're the best of the best at keeping the law. Nobody kept the rules better than me. So both based on my pedigree and based on my behavior, I should have had something. And then I realized it was all garbage. None of it was helpful in terms of reconciling me to God. I realized that my choices were to have a righteousness that was based on what I could do and who I am, or to have a righteousness based on who Jesus is and what he did. And I realized that was the best way. That's actually the only way. If you're standing on anything else before the Lord, you're standing on sand. We must be born again. Our, no, there's nothing in us innately, either from our pedigree. It doesn't matter. We've talked before. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter how long you've been in church. It doesn't matter how much of the Bible you've read. It doesn't matter how much you recycle or how many people you've helped cross the street or how much money you've given to charity. None of it matters. What matters is is your faith and your trust in Jesus. Do you recognize that you're a sinner? You've been bitten by a snake. There's poison running through your body and it is actively killing you. You may not be aware of it physically, but it's happening spiritually. You're a dead man or a dead woman walking. We all are. 
And we can't outgood the poison. Our only hope is to look at the snake. Our only hope is to believe in the Son who was given. That's the provision. John 3.16 is not for God so loved the world that he gave a list of rules that whoever, whoever obeys them really well will not die but will live forever. That's not what he said. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever was born into the right family will not die but live forever. For God so loved the world that he, that, that he, that he gave us a, um, uh, a script to follow. N- none of those things. None of those things. And so the question for us becomes, have we been born again? Have you? Have I? If not, then we're still under the wrath of God. We've all sinned. That sin separates us from God. We're cut off from him. The righteous anger that he has towards sin rightfully rests upon us. Unless we say, how about we let Jesus take the wrath? When we talk about being saved, that's what we mean. We're saved from the wrath of God. That's what we're saved from. We're rescued from the wrath of God. That's 1 Thessalonians 1.10. So if this morning, if you would say, I don't know. I don't know what I'm standing on before Jesus. Let me encourage you to clear that up before you leave. Acknowledge your need for a Savior. Acknowledge that it's only His righteousness upon which you can stand before the Lord. Super easy. Simple. Not easy. Simple. Acknowledge your need for a Savior. Acknowledge the work that Jesus has done for you. Ask God to forgive you. And you'll be reconciled to Him. I was reading about John, and to me, he's a weird guy. I don't know what you think about him. He's odd to me, but he's... He has this huge impact. Some people would say his ministry lasted less than a year. Maybe even as, as short a time as six months, if you can imagine that. It's not very long. But he had this, Matt, Jesus says, no, nobody born of women is greater than John. The least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him, but nobody born of women is greater than him. He's, he's somebody in Jesus' eyes, but he was pretty odd. He grew up in a desert don't know his parents were old. I don't know what at, at what point they died. So he may I don't know. He was raised by wolves or something. He he wore camel's hair and goat hair. He ate locusts. Have you ever seen a locust? That's what he ate in honey. It's to make the locusts go down a little easier. He only drank water. Never had anything other than water to drink. Some people say he never cut his hair. I don't know that that's true. If you can think about that for a while, twenty five years of no haircuts. Living in the desert, it's probably got a, it's probably not super clean at the point that he comes out and he begins to baptize people. And he comes on the scene and it seems like he comes on the scene with kind of a big splash. Mark says he's drawn these tons of crowds are coming to him. All of Jerusalem is coming to him. Everybody in the countryside, they're all coming to him. And how long? Is it six months? Is it nine months? Maybe 12 that he's baptizing, and then Jesus comes on the scene. And John baptizes Jesus, and that inaugurates Jesus' public ministry. And then they just start doing this. And people start leaving John and going to Jesus. And Jesus' star is kind of on the rise, and John is beginning to fade. And John's disciples are going to him and saying, what are you going to do about this? And John says, nothing. And these two statements to me strike me when I think about my own life. And John and all of his kind of idiosyncrasies, I do think there's some things that we can connect to. One, a person can only receive what's given them from heaven. And two, my joy is full. 
I think of those things. When I think of those things in my mind, they tend to pull apart a little bit. When I think of someone who says um, a person can only receive what's given them from heaven in that context, I almost wonder if it would be like if somebody came to John and they're complaining and he's like, what do you want me to do? A person can only receive what's given them from heaven. Like this is what God's given me. And it's kind of petering out. What, What do you want me to do about it? But that's not how John approached it because John says his joy is full. And when I think of someone who would say my joy is full or my joy is complete, I think of someone who's kind of riding high. Cloud nine, everything's clicking, running on all cylinders. But that's not where John is. His ministry is rapidly declining. He's actively losing people, if you want to say that, to Jesus. This is his purpose in life is coming to an end. He's a preparer. And there's no more need, there's no longer a need for preparation because the main guy's here now. And yet he's able to say, My joy is full or complete. And those, both of those statements challenge me when I think about my own life. Can I say, Well, everything I've received, I've, I've received from heaven. My life is a gift. Can I say, My joy is full or my joy is complete? Is my life marked by joy? And I would ask you those two questions as well. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 25 that ties together those two ideas to me. They may not to you. Uh, It's a parable of the talents. Remember that? Your Bible may call it the bags of gold. So a guy's really rich, goes away, and he gives three of his servants money. Says, invest this while I'm gone. He gives one guy one talent, one guy two talents, and one guy five talents. And we hear that. Maybe you think like one coin and two coins and then five coins, but a talent's a unit of measure. Of weight. So a talent of gold is 75 pounds. It's a lot. And two talents is 150 pounds, and five talents is 375 pounds. He's given them a lot. And then he comes back and he says, What'd y'all do with what I gave you? And we'll start at the end. And the guy that had 75 pounds of gold, not one quarter, 75 pounds, he buries it. That's take some work. Go bury something that's 75 pounds. This afternoon is not easy, but that's what he does. Instead of using that money, instead of working to try to invest it, he says, I was scared of you, my masters. I just buried it. You don't have good character and I'm scared of you. And the master says, well, take away those 75 pounds and give it to somebody else. The guy who has 150 pounds, these two talents, he brings back 300 pounds, doubles it. The guy who's been given five talents, 375 pounds of gold. Brings back, if you can imagine, 750 pounds of gold. Can you imagine that? Doubles what the master's given him. And what's interesting is the guy who doubles two and the guy who doubles five are both given the same reward. Their rewards are not proportionate to what they give back. They both double what they were given. And the master says the exact same thing verbatim to each one of them. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and enter into your master's joy. There's that idea. Enter into your master's joy. I connect that to John the Baptist. I see these guys receiving talents. I can think about that that for me. That's actually where we get our understanding of talents in English is from that story. So you can begin to make some of those connections. A A person can only receive what's given them from heaven. A master gives his servants talents. There's a connection there for me. John is able to say, after he's 
in our language, run his race or after he's done his deal in Stonebridge lingo, after he's completed this ministry, my joy is complete. My joy is full. Come and enter into the joy of your master. There's a connection there for me. There's something about seeing life as a gift which fuels this attitude of joy. And there's something about having an attitude of joy, I think, that helps us continue to see life as a gift. And so one of my questions for you is, what's your scorecard on Friday when you're done with the week? And you look back, how do you know if it was a good week or not? Some of you maybe do annual reviews, or maybe you're reviewed by your boss. Maybe just you take a personal assessment. How do you know if it was a good year? When you cross some threshold uh, transition in your life, whatever you would consider a significant milestone, and you look back over a particular season of life, if that's a year or three years, looking at Emma's going to graduate. When you look back at high school, how are you going to know that it was a successful four years? Based on if you got into the college you wanted to go to, do you think a, you, oh, uh, it's been a good week if your boss patted you on the back or if you kept your kids out of jail? or like What is it for you? How do you know? John's disciples come to him and their scorecard is people. John, we're losing people here. This is not good. You're a rabbi. A rabbi without followers is just a guy on a walk. Who is, who is with you? Who's with you? That guy that you talked about, they don't even say his name. That guy that you talked about, the one from the other side of the river, he's, he's getting people at our expense. We're losing. It's a bad week, John. What are you going to do about it? John has a different scorecard. What John says is this is as it should be. It's interesting. These guys who are expressing some level of love and loyalty to John are actually the problem. What John would say is, guys, success for me is you leaving me and following him. That's why I'm here. I'm not here to draw anybody to me. I'm here to point everybody to him. However long John's hair is, he's pulling it out when these guys are coming to him because they don't understand. They don't understand what John is doing. Their scorecard is how many people are following John. John's scorecard is how many people have I pointed to Jesus because my job is to prepare the way for him. It was never to draw anybody to me. By definition, I have to become less and he has to become greater. My ministry has to decrease and his ministry has to increase. He recognizes this is what's been given to me by the Lord. What about for you? What's your scorecard? When you look back, how do you know if it was a good week or a good month or a good year or a good season of life? Do you read things and look at things through the grid of what God is doing in the world and how you cooperate with that? Or do you have a different scorecard altogether? What are you counting? John is not counting the number of people who are with him. He's counting the number of people he sent to Jesus. What about you? When you think about talents, however you want to define those in your own life, do you see those as things that are your possession you can do with as you want? Do you see those things that have been trusted to you and you do with them to glorify God? Do you see your life itself as a gift that's been given to you or something that you own? How do you view your life? How do you view your talents? 
Are you a steward of something that's been given to you by the Lord? Or is it yours and you get to decide how you want to use it? It's a different mentality. What's your scorecard? John also has this great sense of joy. He says, my joy is full. My joy is complete. And he's saying this as things are literally uh, ending for him. He's losing everything that he had. People are leaving him. This is his job, his identity in a lot of ways. He's the one who prepares the way for the Messiah. And now the Messiah is here. And so who, who is John? And what is John supposed to do? He's about to be out of a job. He's about to get arrested. He just doesn't know that yet. And he says, my joy is full. My joy is complete. And I wonder my own life. Is my life marked by joy? So happiness and joy are not the same. Happiness is an emotion, and it's wonderful. It's great. It's tied to circumstances. It's smaller than joy. Joy is bigger. It's deeper. God commands us to be joyful. I don't think God ever commands us how to feel. But he does command, he, he does command posture in us. He commands attitude and outlook in us. And he says... Be joyful. And the, some of the circumstances that we're told to be joyful in or to rejoice in are, are not circumstances that you would ever be happy in. Trials and troubles and sufferings and sorrows. We're told to be joyful in all those. We're actually told, told to be joyful in all circumstances. So that to me, there, there's something about joy that, that's deeper than a feeling. It absolutely can express itself emotionally and often does. But it's deeper than that. It's a, it's a state of delight. And it's grounded in your relationship with God. That never changes. Circumstances do. God doesn't. We just sang that. You're never going to let us down. You're never going to let us down. He doesn't change. And so our joy is grounded in our relationship with Him. We have this state of delight that's not based on whether things are going well for me. This state of delight that's not based on the circumstances that I'm encountering on any particular day because that state of delight is rooted in my relationship with God. And that's the same regardless of my circumstances. Does that make sense? And so John, even as he is literally losing everything, can say my joy is complete, my joy is full. Why? Because he's conscious of his relationship with God in that moment. Does that define you as well? Would you say yes? And some of you, the answer is absolutely yes. My life is marked by joy. I, even through difficult times, through tragedy, through sorrow, through suffering, through frustration, through confusion, I would say that underneath all of that, I maintain this posture of great delight. May, I'm, not saying, I'm not asking if you laugh all the time, but internally, there's a posture of great delight. Because you know you're connected to Jesus. That's joy. And John has that. And so can we. And I would say so should we. Joy is not something that you work up. It's a fruit of the Spirit. He cultivates that and produces that in us. Romans 15 says God pours joy into our heart. So don't feel like I'm telling you to be happy when you're not. It's the, I'm, it's, I'm far removed from that. I'm saying... Can you allow the Holy Spirit within you to cultivate this sense of delight? Which I think we sang that too. You're good. And there's a connection between recognizing the goodness of God and living a joyful life. If you're not convinced of one, it's going to be difficult for you to live the other. If you're not convinced that God is good, it's going to be very difficult to live joyfully all of your days. So I want to encourage you as we close. We have a couple of minutes for prayer. 
three questions. You can close your eyes if you would. Three questions I want you to ask. First question would be if there's anyone in the room and, and you would say, I, I don't know. I don't know where I stand with Jesus. And don't try to figure, like, don't make yourself okay. Don't do that. Don't try to make yourself okay. Just be honest. Where am I with Jesus? If you're thinking about your baptism, you're thinking wrong. If you're thinking about your parents, you're wrong. If you're thinking about your behavior, like all of you're thinking wrong. The thing you need to be thinking about is have I repented of my sins and asked God to forgive me. And if you're not sure, well, let today be the day that you become sure. Revelation 3, there's a picture. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone will open the door, I'll come in. And so you can hear this this morning as Jesus knocking on your heart. And all you have to do is open the door. Simply welcome him into your life. Jesus, I recognize I've sinned. That right now I'm sitting under your wrath and I deserve it. I'm arrogant, I'm prideful, I'm, I'm a gossip, I lust after other. Whatever it is, I, I deserve your wrath. But rather than receiving that in my own life, I thank you that you sent your son to bear your wrath on my behalf. And so I'm going to let him take that weight and ask that you would forgive me and reconcile me to yourself. And he will. There's more to it. That's just step one. But you can do that this morning. Many of you have already made that decision. And so two questions for you. One, do you view your life as a gift? Is your life yours? Or has your life some, uh, been entrusted to you by another? If you like it a different way, what's your scorecard? last question is your life marked by joy so Holy Spirit I pray that you would come and you would speak to each one of us any who don't know you that they would uh, yield to you this morning those men and women would yield to you they would sense you kind of knocking at the door of their heart and they would open their lives to you I pray for those of us who are following you God I pray that not just at the end of our life, but I pray on a regular basis, we would hear you saying to us, you're doing great. You're doing great. Well done. That your joy is not just something we enter into at our death, but it's something that we can enjoy right now. According to Zephaniah, you rejoice over us with singing now. And God, I pray as your sons and your daughters that we would know the reality of the joy that you invite us into. And we would hear you saying to us, you're doing great. Some of you can't fathom God saying that to you. You may need to go back to John 3.16. He loves you. He loves you. God, would you, for each of us, would you give us eyes to see and to understand perspective, to recognize what you've given us and then what you would have us do with what you've given us. 
I think the hearts of the men and women in this room, all of our hearts are to be faithful. Would you show us what that looks like? And God, I pray for each one of us that our lives would be marked by joy as well. That we would all be constantly aware of our relationship with you and that would stir within us a great sense of delight. That even when things are going sideways, when life is happening, I pray, God, that underneath and through and above and behind all of those circumstances, our posture would be one of joy. And I pray for those who are struggling this morning, whatever that mystery means for your joy to be our strength, I pray that would, they would know that reality before they leave this place this morning. That your joy would be their strength. In Jesus' name, amen.